Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to each of them and then we get together to have a chat about it. This time we're up to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which was released in July 1973. So as usual, Rich, the first question is how familiar were you with this record before this time of uh, revisiting it? Yeah, not very, actually. In fact, if at all, I mean, I knew Knocking on Heaven's Door and I had seen the film, I guess, at some point in the 90s. And it was when I was kind of getting into Bob Dylan. And I don't remember being massively impressed by either the film and definitely not by the album. My views have subsequently changed and we'll talk a little bit about that um, in some regard. But yeah, I mean, this, this was pretty new to me. And it was it was just never one of those that had kind of leapt out. I mean, I think we mentioned before, there's some Bob Dylan albums, such as New Morning, for example, where you very rarely kind of got into conversations with people saying, oh, have you heard this one? It's absolutely great. I don't think anyone had ever said to me, hey, you've got to listen to, uh, to, to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It's the best Bob Dylan album ever. I mean, it just doesn't feature. But yeah, so I, I was kind of new to it this time around. What about you, Mark? Well, I guarantee there'll be somebody out there who does say this is the best Bob Dylan album. Um, but yes, I've never had a conversation along those lines either. Very, very similar, Rich. Yeah, so I saw the film in the 90s when I was getting into Bob Dylan, just like you. I don't know if there was some reason why it was on the TV in the 90s. I know that obviously we'll talk about various versions and I guess um, it was 88, wasn't it, that the, the preview version came out. So perhaps it was like the cycle of that being being shown on terrestrial tv as we used to used to call it but yeah i, I never I, I actually i did actually love the film first time i saw it but i was quite ho-hum about bob dylan's role in it both the acting and the music and it was one of those where we, we've talked several times before about the very soulless environment of being in a massive hmv or tower records and leafing through the cheap cds to see what you could find and i must have held this cd in my hand reading the track list multiple times before putting it back and deciding to buy something else <laughs> and, I, and I think I finally got hold of it much later when I was on a completist kick and you know that sort of period in the 2000s when you could buy CDs for a song I probably picked it up then so I have had it but yeah one of the ones that I've listened to very very rarely over the years and so yeah it was a pleasant surprise this time yeah I mean I think back in the 90s I sound like an old man here sitting by a fire kind of reminiscing but um Back in the 90s, there was, I do remember there being quite a spate of Westerns on TV. And I don't know, as you said, I don't know what the reason for this is, whether or not they were going cheap. The sort of spaghetti Westerns and all of that might have been quite cheap to put on air at that point in time. It might just have been that they were kind of anniversaries of things like the good, the bad and the ugly or whatever. I know Dances with Wolves came out as well. So that kind of, yes. I suppose, maybe maybe kind of reintroduced a bit of interest in the kind of genre. But yeah, I do remember because my dad was always very into Westerns. I mean, because, of course, back growing up when he did, that was what people sort of watched on TV and went to the cinema to see. And so, yeah, it, it, when I look back, I mean, it was it was either sort of match of the day or, or some Western on TV. <laughs> <laughs> or one following the other exactly that or only fools and horses and that was about <laughs> it so yeah I, th I think that it it was i mean clearly I, I guess we both saw it at the same same sort of time then but um what about the kind of background to this one then mark i mean is we we've talked before about how he had his kind of nashville period and he kind of 
had his New York period and then went back to New York. What's the, what's the deal with this one? Yeah, so we're in 1973 now, aren't we? Uh, metaphorically, I should stress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this was three years after New Morning, which I guess would be by some distance the longest gap between records for Dylan up to this point. Probably worth pointing out that he had put out Greatest Hits Volume 2. And uh, the interesting thing about that that I discovered while reading about this was that apparently Greatest Hits Volume 2 came out uh, because the record company wanted a record, as these things usually do. And Dylan's idea had been that he wanted to release some of the Basement Tapes tracks, but they just weren't considered to be of sufficient quality to release. So he put out his Greatest Hits Volume 2, but then there's, there's the re-recording, isn't there, of a few of those Basement tracks yes. in very different style. And, and of course, those would, be, would have been the official versions for, for the next few years. But yeah, so it'd been a while since we'd heard from him last. And I just think, you know, it's, it's worth reflecting on that. So he'd He'd released his first seven albums within five years, but now we've had seven years where he's only put out five records. This is one of them, obviously yeah. a soundtrack, as we'll talk about. And and one of the other ones was uh, Self-Portrait, which was um, a covers record. So a real step change, isn't it, from what had gone before? It really is. And I, I mean, he's still incredibly prolific, really, compared with so many other people. But I think that, I mean, compared with what had gone before and, of course, what kind of comes later... This is almost, I mean, it sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's almost a bit of a fallow kind of period, really. I mean, I, I love the fact that he, he acts in this film. And I mean, evidently, that's kind of taken some of his energy to, to kind of involve himself with this. And it's a very different kind of project. But yeah, it's, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the marrying here of, of, of picture as in motion picture and uh, the, the kind of soundtrack itself. But I mean, what are we thinking of him as, as an actor, Mark? Do we want to go down that route already? Or do we want to save that for slightly later? Um, yeah, I guess it's probably just worth mentioning sort of how this, this came about uh, as a project. So obviously the record came out in the July, but the filming was down in Mexico, wasn't it? In Durango, yes. I think? Yes, that's right. So Dylan recorded, I think, Billy, uh, maybe a couple of other tracks in Mexico City. There's a lovely story about that, but apparently Peckinpah, a very famously confrontational and sort of alpha male kind of guy, had run-ins, unsurprisingly, with members of the cast and and Dylan himself and apparently he'd put on a screening of a film one evening and then invited everybody to come along but the vast majority went with Dylan to record in Mexico City instead <laughs> so it was quite quite amusing to think about but yeah he'd recorded some of the some of the tracks in Mexico City for this record but then the story is that I think the um the scorer who usually worked with Peckinbar said you can't you can't score a film with one song, which was essentially what was going on with Billy. So he ended up re recording some tracks in California uh, the next month. And I think that's where uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door was was recorded. But yeah, I mean, let's get into the acting. I know you uh, you had some views on this, didn't you, Rich? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think when I was a kid, when I watched this, I think, I mean, I, I seem to remember thinking, oh, Bob Dylan's in it. This is going to be great. And I seem to remember having been a bit disappointed that he didn't play a, a bigger role in it. And it's interesting because when I watched it this time around, I thought he was very impressive. And I think his performance, I mean, he's very striking on, on screen as the, the character of Alias. But I think the other thing that struck me is, is just how good 
Chris Christopherson is in the in in the kind of title role, and I think that anyone that's playing alongside that particular performance is perhaps gonna. Well, certainly, if you're watching it as an adolescent, you you your kind of attention's gonna be consumed by Christopherson rather than by uh, by Bob Dylan. Yeah, he, he does suffer from that comparison, I think, and also I think James Coburn's is, is fantastic in this this time around. I found it incredible to watch him and I think when I was an adolescent I probably thought he was about 80 in the, in the film <laughs> so I wasn't really on that wavelength but yeah two fantastic star performances in this film I think and that does overshadow Dylan a little bit but I think that looking back to the 90s when we watched this both of us are sort of embryonic Dylan fans we were definitely watching this in the spirit of I'm going to see Bob Dylan in a movie not yeah. I'm going to see a movie that he happens to be in so that also colours things I think yeah, I think I agree. And um, I mean, I think he's pretty good. I mean, obviously, this is called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. I think it's important that we we explore some of our kind of links with the immortal bard, as we always try to. But I think the most obvious thing to think about here is that this is Bob Dylan, who is, of course, a musician, a singer-songwriter, who is playing the part of an actor. Well, actually just being an actor and playing the part of Alias, I should say. And of course, Shakespeare, obviously, in very famous terms, was also an actor, despite kind of being the playwright as well. So I think we've got a, a quite an interesting parallel here between the two of them. And I mean, we don't really know when it goes back to kind of Elizabethan times, what Shakespeare was like as an actor, obviously. There are various reports. I mean, very famously, the uh, Cambridge educated wit, Robert Greene, um, who referred to him as the upstart crow, was quite kind of damning of, of Shakespeare's acting abilities, um, saying that he should stick to effectively to writing plays and to, to working on that. But of course, it's supposedly Shakespeare spent a good kind of 15 odd years in the theatre acting. And you can't in the Elizabethan era and what followed it, really, you can't have been a terrible actor. Um, and, and continue going for that amount of time. And I, I think, therefore, we've kind of got a definite kind of sense of parallel here between the two guys, because they are they are acting, but they're kind of better known, as it were, for, for, for doing something else. And I think, evidently, Shakespeare could turn his hand to acting. And I think Bob Dylan manages to turn his hand to acting very, very effectively here. I mean, at some stage, we'll get into some of the other bits and pieces that he's acted in. But I, I genuinely think this is strong. And I think that this... This stands up in probably the same way that Shakespeare's uh, theatrical appearances would have done at the time. Yeah, and I think the other side of that parallel is obviously Dylan the songwriter and Dylan the performer and the way in which every performance that he gives to some extent reinterprets what he's created as something that's on the page or that can be scored as a piece of music. And I don't know to what extent Shakespeare would have been reinterpreting the works each time he acted it or whether that would have been different if somebody else had been playing the role. But for Dylan, that's absolutely fundamental. You know, every time he approaches a song afresh, it's something new for him. And it's when it's not new for him that we get those dodgy live performances that we, we were all familiar with, I think. I've lost my train of thought there. Just bear with me a second. <laughs> no, I mean, if, uh, I can just, if I can just jump in there, I think what you've said there about him, everything being the performance, I mean, they've clearly captured kind of lightning in a bottle really there with with his performance of Alias because I, I have no doubt that if they'd have been filming on other days at other times they'd have had a completely different Alias from Bob Dylan I mean you're right any time that he approaches something it's kind of like it's fresh and it's new and it's it's for the first time if it's any good otherwise 
yeah, it's like he's kind of going through the motions, isn't it? Have you re- recaptured? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've picked up the thread again. Yeah. Yeah, well, shall we talk a little bit about the film generally then and how yeah. Dylan sits in it? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we've, we've name-checked Big Sam already, haven't we? Sam Peckinpah, he was already, by this point... Uh, I, thought you, I thought you meant Allardyce for a minute then. I was wondering <laughs> where you were going with that. But, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is far too early for football to be intriguing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, Big Sam Peckinpah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, he, I mean, he was already very well established, wasn't he? So I think even at this point, films like Ride the High Country... Uh, the Wild Bunch particularly, were, were seen as instant classics. But he had gone a little bit off-piste with The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which I, I love, actually, but it's it's definitely not in the same vein as those those earlier films. And then, of course, I think, I think his previous film to this one, certainly a couple of years earlier, was Straw Dogs, which to this day remains quite a controversial film. So his stock was perhaps a little bit lower than it had been at the end of the 60s. And, and of course, very famously, this film is also one of those that had tremendous, tr- a tremendously fraught filming and particularly post-production process. Um, so I've already mentioned the sorts of clashes that went on on set, you know, these very big personalities all cooped up together in Durango. But I suppose most relevant is what happened after they'd finished filming. Uh, there was a lot of pressure from the studio to get something out really quickly. They were really concerned that, that they'd already gone over budget and they weren't willing to give Beckinpah time to frame the film and edit it in, to his vision. So a much shorter version came out in theatres, uh, didn't it, Rich? Yeah, it did. And I mean, this is probably quite a sort of spurious and uh, tenuous kind of link. But I think... One of the things that strikes me about this is that you've got that much, much shorter version that came out and it wasn't, it was quite considerably removed from kind of Peckinpah's original vision, if if we sort of believe that. And I'm reminded a little bit about the sort of reappropriation, really, of Shakespeare's work subsequently to his death, really. I mean, the, obviously the first folio came out, but it was published a long time, really, after he died. And particularly the kind of Victorians, they kind of reappropriated Shakespeare. They, they edited it. They took bits and pieces out. I mean, some of these cuts were considerable because, of course, Victorians with their sort of heightened sense of morality, etc., etc., particularly on the stage turn Shakespeare into something that Shakespeare probably wasn't originally and so I'm not quite sure if that works as a parallel but if you're producing a, p- a piece of art and it then gets put into someone else's hands and and, uh, and altered as much as it, it as certainly Shakespeare seemed to and, and Peckinpah's in this in this case then you kind of wonder of course what the original vision actually was and I think um, it's difficult to say isn't it I think it's only sort of subsequently after the the, the kind of re-edit was put out that people had a deep decent enough idea about what Peckinpah was was sort of intending with this really. Yeah so I, th- I did read six editors credited on the theatrical release which gives you some indication of, <laughs> of what had gone on. I would love to see it I, I don't think I've ever seen it as I say I, I don't remember which version I wouldn't have been particularly bothered which version I'd watched back in the day but I'm assuming it would have been the preview version that you've just alluded to which was the version that I think Peckinpah showed to Scorsese maybe um, but certainly he used to he used to hawk it around after the fact and show it at, at lectures and seminars and things like that. And it, it is a very different film from all, by all accounts. Well, as I say, I haven't seen the, the theatrical version. But what I know is missing from the theatrical version is the, the framing of the story uh, with those kind of flashbacks to the future where we see uh, Garrett's fate 
20 or 30 years after the film. And I have a, I have a theory about this, Rich, which I, I came across on a wonderful thread somewhere in the deep reaches of the internet talking about this film. And someone was particularly upset that, that in the most recent version, which is a kind of combination of the theatrical and preview versions with additional touch-ups to the colours and so on, they were very aggrieved that the, um, the final uh, shot of Garrett's death is, is omitted and the film ends with him riding away after the assassination of Billy. And the reason they were so upset was that they said in Peckinpah's version, the preview version, you see Garrett being shot and then there's a freeze frame of him falling off the car. And they said that they believe that that symbolizes the moment of death being prolonged. It's, it's kind of frozen at that moment. And everything that follows is then Garrett's life flashing before his eyes so that you, um, you see, uh, you know, then at the end of the film, it goes back to that moment and he hits the ground and that's it. He's died and the film ends. Now, I've got absolutely no idea if that was what Peckinpah <laughs> intended, but it's fantastic. It's a fantastic thought. And I just, I, I, the whole film obviously has this tremendous kind of foreboding feeling. There's so much death in it, isn't there? And it, it becomes quite overwhelming uh, by the end. But the other thing that goes on through it is that you get this real changing in the way Garrett's presented you know when he gets off his horse at the start in uh, what is it Fort Sumner and he's um he's almost like a genie or grandfather isn't he and then he's you know the fact that he's shooting chickens with a shotgun <laughs> perhaps indicates something about his character but he's very warm towards Billy he's clean shaven he looks great and as you go through the film you know those weeks on the road on the, on the horseback they really really affect his his appearance don't they he he looks completely different at the end than he did at the start and i, I see that as this this um, sense that the guilt the remorse are all sort of flowing out of him at that moment of death that we we revisit at the end that's so that's, sorry yeah i was going to say that that when you put it like that it's a very interesting idea because you've got that continual deterioration and i mean you're right he's almost like the, the genial sort of family man. I mean, he's even seemingly happy, kind of happily married at the start of it. And then of course he's on the road and he's consorting with prostitutes, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's a hell of a burden that he's got to carry because he's killing, of course, a guy that was formerly his friend. And so I suppose that I find that very interesting, that idea that it's kind of, it's his life almost flashing before his eyes. I mean, I'm reminded of many years ago, I did a course in the States called uh, Psychotics in American cinema and there was this French lecturer who was obsessed by the idea of vectors which were used in film shots and he'd use this kind of infrared pen and he would endlessly talk he'd pause things and he'd be talking about that that's the sort of um, level of analysis that you sort of gone into then which I, I must admit did not occur to me but it's it's fascinating nonetheless but I've butted in there I'm sorry but uh, what I would say is that yeah the deterioration I don't think when I watched it as a I don't know, 17-year-old or whatever. I don't think I noticed that. But it's really, it's quite striking, isn't it, when you watch it again? Definitely. And I did cheat a little bit because obviously the idea is not original to me at all. And also having read that, I went back and watched the start again. <laughs> so it definitely didn't, <laughs> definitely didn't occur to me uh, on, on a first rewatch either. But yeah, so I think that's the sort of, of depth that I think this film does contain. And it stands up to that kind of critical scrutiny because I really do think it is a fantastic film. But as I think we've said already, it was very, very poorly received. And it was only after this um, 
this uh, different version came out in the 80s that the, the reassessment took place. I mean, I, I think particularly on that 2005 version I was just mentioning, the colours are fantastic, aren't they? It's a very autumnal film as well as much as anything else. And that combined with the slower pace, the framing idea and Dylan's music, I think all of that combines to make it something very special indeed. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, it is a great looking movie. I mean, and this is, of course, an era when a lot of money was pumped into into movies. But of course, they, they really did know what they were doing because this was also the era of the kind of spaghetti Western. I mean, it was the kind of, it was the twilight of that, I suppose, really. But you had, the setup was all there. You had actors and extras that had appeared in probably hundreds of films and TV serials and stuff like that. So it was a quite kind of well-established kind of industry, obviously. But I mean, I think the performances, I think, as you say, the colours, everything that sort of feeds into it, it's really, really very impressive. I mean, in no way am I surprised that the filming was fraught with arguments because, I mean, it must... There's so many instances of those kind of cowboy actors for want of a better word i mean they're holed up in mexico drinking tequila all the time in the middle of nowhere really it's no wonder that they were at each other's throats very very quickly and so the the, the fact that this was 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 quite sort of ill-tempered in places that doesn't surprise me at all but it looks great it's such a, a good looking movie and, and i think it, it that stands up to this day definitely i mean they're really really great performances yeah i couldn't agree more well, shall we, um, shall we actually get to the man we're here to talk about and uh, think about yeah, I, Dylan I, I, a little bit? I think, uh, I think we should. I, just before we do, I mean, I'm just sort of mindful of, of, of making another Shakespeare link, if I may. But I mean, one of these things that people often talk about with regards to Shakespeare is, yes, genius, amazing, uh, undisputed, you know, great playwright, etc., etc. But he very rarely used original plots normally i mean the majority of his uh, his his writing was based on things like plutarch's lives or hollinshead's uh, chronicles for the histories for example a lot of the time it was reworkings of, of of stuff i mean even hamlet allegedly is a reworking of an older play and, and we've got the same thing happening here really this is bob dylan albeit it's not his film but he's he's an instrumental part in it they're using an existing story which of course is the story of billy the kid so this isn't new stuff but much as shakespeare's kind of genius came from recasting characters and recasting chronologies and just with his inventiveness with language essentially making things more interesting I think that the same the same is happening here. I mean, this is an original, this is a pretty original take on 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 a well-known story. I mean, they could have they could have played safe. They could have done it fairly um run of the mill, I suppose. But this is not this I mean, this this pushes quite a lot of boundaries. And so in much the same way as I think it's important we don't judge Shakespeare's brilliance by his perceived lack of originality when it comes to kind of plot lines, I think we've got to apply the same kind of um thought process to Dylan here because this is a great great take on something which you know isn't isn't wholly original obviously yeah and this film is quite a late entry but I would say a very important entry into the whole revisionist western genre isn't it so the very idea that you're you're setting up this really morally ambiguous origin myth for the US yeah is is is, is key isn't it and I I think there's there's kind of throwbacks to previous films as well. So um, very famously, the way in which Gary Cooper in in High Noon 
seeks help and can't get any. And then in Rio Bravo, John Wayne doesn't want any help because everyone, all the people around him have got so many deep flaws that he thinks they can't help him. But of course, he needs them in the end. But in this film, Garrett is a much more compromised character from the outset than they are. And he doesn't really fit in anywhere, does he? He's, he's turned his back on, on uh, the, old, uh, the old cowboy, uh, cow thief gang. But we even find out that actually when he was involved with them, Billy the Kid was, was on the side of the law. But he's also clearly um, held in contempt by the landowners and that contempt is mutual. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of time for his deputies either, does he? <laughs> no, this is it, totally. I mean, he, he's, he just, I mean, in much the same way as, as this goes on, he just uh, kind of deteriorates as a person. He, he, he becomes more and more isolated and more ostracised as well, doesn't he? So by the end he's just kind of well i say by the end by the by the kind of flashback to the future if it is if that's the right term at the start we we're not really surprised are we that that's the fate because he's he's alienated everyone else yes i do have a point to make here just let me remember just let me remember <laughs> what it was <laughs> yes that was it i also think that the um the scene where billy arrives at the house where they're all having dinner and he finds the deputy who had been sent off on some wild goose chase by Garrett earlier, and he calls him out to kill him, which he didn't have to do, we, we assume. And I think that's the counterpoint to the accusation that this film romanticizes Billy the Kid, which to some extent it does. But this is not the kind of Billy the Kid as Robin Hood that some versions of the tale have. We do get a sense of Billy as somebody who's very, very violent, ruthless, cruel, but he also has this loyalty to the world that he's associated with and the, the people who populate it. So very morally complicated film, I think. And um, yeah, yeah, I just think it is a great film all around. Yeah, that bit when he, um, when he shoots the guy and he, he turns and they're, they're doing the kind of standoff and walking 10 paces and he's already turned around and he, he shoots him in the back. I'd forgotten it was from this film, but that, that stayed with me from when I watched it as a teenager. And I remember being very troubled by, the, by it because, of course, there's no... Even at the end, there's no remorse because he says, oh, you only took seven paces or you only took eight paces or whatever it is. And he's just shot the guy in the back. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's absolutely, I mean, it's sort of, that's quite psychopathic, isn't it? There's no, absolutely no acknowledgement whatsoever that he's done anything wrong. It's like, oh, you didn't take the full number of paces. Never mind the fact that I've just turned around and completely cheated myself. I mean, I agree. It's, it's not a nice Billy the Kid that we see here anyway i mean god knows what the real one would have been like probably <laughs> syphilitic and uh, psychopathic and uh, utterly devoid of any kind of romance but but there we go it's, it's like with ned kelly isn't it i mean it's the same sort mm. of thing they they were not good people they they may well have had ballads written about them but that doesn't mean that they were fine upstanding members of the community <laughs> no no definitely not and it's, it's, this like, film... it's, like, it's like the craze isn't it oh they loved their mum it's like well, yes, they were brutal killers that were kind of um, ditching bodies in the thames etc etc but they always loved their mum <laughs> can you just edit that bit out if we have any listeners in east london I don't know. How long does the statute of limitations last? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think we were we were <laughs> we were going to talk about the music. We probably ought to talk about Bob Dylan and the music, really, given that uh, that's what this whole thing is really about. So, what what do you want to kick off with, then, Mark? Yeah, well, I, I was quite curious thinking about it this time about why Dylan did it in the first place. I mean, both from the point of view of why did he want to be in a film and and why was he particularly in this one. 
And I, I don't know if you have any any more uh, insight into this, Rich. I, I have but... I have one theory which is very stupid, but I'm going to tell it. To well, you. I'll do. And I think that he accepted the role because he thought that it would uh, cement the idea of him as a man of words, and that's why they had him read out all of the labels on the uh, on the jars, and that. <laughs> 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 sorry that's too ridiculous that's, that's the best i've got when it comes to this i don't know why he did it really i mean probably knowing bob dylan wanted to wear a different mask and fancy to change really and saw an opportunity and thought why not would be would be my gut feeling but what do you reckon? i i think that's probably right and that scene with the beans uh what is it uh stewed beef is <laughs> 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 tremendous but yeah, well, I don't know. I think you're right. It was. I, I would guess it probably was something more, something more like the opportunity came up and he took it rather than any any master plan. There's a couple of wonderful stories around it, uh, which you always wonder how close to the truth they come. But one of the one of the things that supposedly happened is that the cast were at Peckinpah's house drinking tequila naturally, and Dylan turned up with the idea that he was going to do some maybe a theme song for the film and he played billy to Beckenbar and reduced him to tears and he was hired on the spot i, I really hope that's true that would be so wonderful if it was but yeah the other thing that i heard that's out there is that uh, the, the screenwriter rudy Wurlitzer was a friend of dylan's and he showed him a, a draft and uh, you know he just agreed to participate on that basis so i guess it's, it probably was something something like that just a an opportunity that came up that he seized but i guess what we do know for sure is that he moved his whole family down down there and they stayed for a few months um, and there were clashes weren't there with the um the scorer yeah peckinpah's usual scorer who i think had originally thought that dylan was going to do maybe a theme tune but then he actually ended up scoring pretty much the whole film which yeah. jerry fielding i think it was, was was less than impressed by yeah it's it's interesting isn't it because I think that when I've listened to the album, I've been, I've, I've thought, yeah, do you know what? This isn't musically that great, but when you see it in conjunction with the film, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty amazing. I think it's absolutely appropriate right the way through. I mean, he, he just kind of gets the atmosphere. I mean, there's an awful lot. The fact that they're in Durango, I don't know. Is he maybe kind of, thinking about or informed um, that kind of sound that he uses on Desire later on. Because to me, a lot of it sounds a little bit kind of like it's moving in that sort of direction, really. But I, yeah, I mean, as, a, as the guy who's kind of got to make the call on this, I can imagine you'd be a bit miffed if Bob Dylan's coming in and kind of taking over with the whole score thing. But I think it's, I think it's a, one of the sort of perfect marriages between music and, and kind of what's on the screen, really. I just think it ticks a whole lot of boxes, with the exception of the turkey chase, which is crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I mean, there was a review, wasn't there? Was it Rolling Stone, where they called it something like ramshackle or perfunctory or something like that? Yeah, I think it might have been Landau, mightn't it, in Rolling Stone, actually. John Landau. Was it? Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't, he, it, words like inept and amateurish, I think, were from, from memory. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, he, yeah, he, was it him who said that it was kind of a sequel to self-portrait in the sense that he was distancing himself from 
what he'd been before. I, I don't disagree with that from this this point of view. I mean, we're a, we're a long a long time after the fact now, of course, so it's easier to to take a different view. But I I I, I agree with you totally. I think that the songs that well, let's think about the musical tracks, the instrumental tracks. I guess I think they really do have an evocative feel for the period, and they and and they certainly work really really well in the film. I, I think the, the the title theme. And the uh, the final theme, particularly after you've seen them in the film, those images are then really kind of searingly associated with the song in your mind. So that when you play them again subsequently, they're really quite they, have, they pack an emotional punch, which I really didn't expect because I had I'd never gotten that when I'd listened to it separately from watching the film at the same time. Yeah, I think this is perhaps the problem that Landau might have had. I mean, far be it from for me to judge him, but if you are writing a review of this as an album versus writing a review about this as a soundtrack with in conjunction with the film i think it doesn't stand up that well i mean my i was going to save this till the end but i'm going to say it now my my kind of conclusion with this really is that i think that this is a great soundtrack but not a great album because i think they are two different things and you've got to view them or listen to them as two different things really and I think it's a bit unfair, really, to call this almost sort of perfunctory or kind of amateurish, because I think it does. It, it, it perfectly kind of sums up and encapsulates that kind of border feel, really. Yeah, I agree. I mean, shall we talk about some of the individual tracks then? Yeah. So but the one reason why anybody standing in HMV in 1995 might have bought this album is uh knocking on heaven's door i reckon so shall we, we pick we, up on that listen one mate, we we've tiptoed around it long enough we probably <laughs> ought to dive in there now like. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go then what, what what do you what do you think of this one as chris christopherson says the and i'm not entirely sure of the details of this but i mean I think that Peckinpah had a bit of a blind spot about this. I think he'd probably drunk too much tequila, got in too many arguments and left it off of the original kind of death scene. When you see it in conjunction with the, with the guy kind of sat down there by the, the river or the lake or whatever it is, looking out into the sunset, I mean, it's, it's masterful, isn't it? I do think it works extremely well in that context. But just to play devil's advocate a little bit and uh, stick up for... The Big Sam, uh, the Peckinpah version. <laughs> I, I think that the way he handled it was to use more of the instrumental version, perhaps with the choir. I don't, I don't quite remember now which which bit of it is in his cut. And I think that also works extremely well. That being said, the the version with the restored colour is so fantastic, and that does have Dylan's verses going over the top of it. So I'm not going to complain about that. It's, it's, it's a tremendously powerful scene and the music makes it. But I do just have a little hesitation about it. One is that compared to the rest of the record, which is so, you know, evocative of that uh, 19th century borderland. It was a territory, wasn't it, New Mexico? Not, not a state at that point. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know when it became part of the Union, actually. I mean, it was, I think it was right at the tail end of the 1800s. And the border might even have, sorry, the frontier might even have been closed. Yeah. By the yeah. By that time, I, I I forget the details, but but yeah, it was. I think it was a territory when the film was set, certainly. Yeah. So I I don't think the choir really sits with that in in a very good way. I do think the scene is fantastic, and the use of that song there works very well. But I just it it sort of takes me out of the moment a little bit and makes me think, oh yeah, that's Bob Dylan's 
big song. And that's that's unfair because, of course, that's what it was written for, wasn't it? To be, be part of a successful soundtrack and a commercial product. But that's the only little gripe I've got about it. Thinking about it outside the context of the film, I, I'm not a tremendous fan of the song, really. And, and again, I think that's a little bit unfair. Part of it is that I find it a bit too literal and it loses a little bit for me because of that. But the other thing, and this is totally unfair, is that I, I just associate it with all the horrible cover versions. Yeah, it's unfair, but there you yeah, go. Can't get away from it. There was a, 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 well, I mean, for much of the 90s, if you ever saw a band playing live in a pub, they'd probably play Knocking on Heaven's Door um, <laughs> quite badly. Uh, I mean, obviously, Guns N' Roses famously did. I quite like their cover version of it. Clapton did one. I can't say the same about his, but there we go. But I think it's, it is, you're, you're right, it's maybe a bit literal. Compared with virtually everything else in Bob Dylan's canon, it seems very, very literal. Because this isn't one where we're endlessly thinking, I wonder what he's on about here. And I mean, I suppose if that's a criticism of some 60s movies, they tend to maybe signpost things a little bit too obviously at times. I mean, that kind of subtlety, it is there in the very best exponents of the art, of course. But I suppose in tastes change, things change in cinema, just like they do with music, don't they? And I think... um, Mm. In, in, in that regard, maybe maybe it's a bit of a product of uh, of its time because it is. Yeah, you know, I suppose that's right. It is it is a bit obvious, isn't it? Oh no, he's been shot. He's yeah, him. and the, the other thing, when I was watching the film the second time, but I I was a little bit less emotionally involved. I did sort of think, well, I like this sheriff, but why is he getting this treatment when everybody else has just been left to drop dead <laughs> without <laughs> such banter? And, and then, then later, of course, it, it comes back again as just a snatch comes back on in another death. And I started thinking, well, this is going to be a bit ridiculous if they're wheeling this out every time somebody was supposed to sympathise with dies. And they don't do that, of course. But I just find it a little bit veering towards that kind of over-literal sense. But I will absolutely qualify all that by saying I think that scene with both versions of the music behind it is absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. It's, it's a hell of a body count in this uh, in in this film, isn't it? I mean, there's just people dropping dead left, right, and centre, really. But what else then? So, I mean, I I like Billy um, one, and I like Billy four, although slightly less so. I don't think any either of them are really songs that I would listen to a great deal outside of the film, though. I mean, I think they work as um, this is the kind of criticism, or maybe the strength of this whole album. I think they work very well in conjunction with the pictures. I'm not entirely sure that they're that listenable. I mean, I'm not ever going to think, oh, do you know what? I'm going to put Billy Four on instead of putting uh, Sad-Eyed Lady, The Lowlands or something like that. I mean, it's just, they're just incomparable, really, aren't they? I think so. I can't remember where I read this now, but there was somebody associated with the film who said, yeah, this guy Dylan, he's got this, this song with, a, with a, an unlimited number of verses that he just wheels out in a random order. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely got that vibe to it. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. And I think I, I agree, it, it fits very well with the pictures on, on the screen. But I do think the lyric is pretty poor for the most part. I mean, you've just mentioned Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands and the way the, the rhymes build in that or Visions of Johanna or something like that is just mind-bendingly astonishing and let's just say the way the rhyme is building this one doesn't have the same effect yeah i i agree i mean i i think when we know that bob dylan can write 
as effortlessly seemingly as he is able to you just don't get the impression that he sat there with a typewriter and spent quite as long on this and I think it would have been a case of yeah let's churn out a little bit here and there playing out no doubt aspects of a sort of cowboy fantasy from his uh, from his childhood I think it would have been relatively easy writing for him if, if there is such a thing but that said and I think we did have a, a comment on Twitter about this didn't we the vocal on on Billy Wan is is very powerful. I think it's it's good stuff. Yeah, that's true. So performance wise, I think that the performances are strong. I think lyrically um, less so, as we've said. But yeah, the performances. I mean, we're kind of and I mentioned Desire already. I mean, when we get to that, that's one of my favourite Bob Dylan albums. But the performances on that are, are monumental. I think uh, pretty much right the way through. And I think we're. I just kind of get get the sense that we're moving towards that territory. I mean, we, we talked a while ago about Planet Waves. Um, not Planet Waves, sorry. Ugh. We talked about self-portrait. And, um, and what we said about self-portrait was it really did feel like he was kind of unsure of where he was going. I get the sense with this that he's kind of, he's got one foot back on track here. He, he, he kind of, he, he's moving forwards, put it that way. Yeah, I hadn't ever thought about that before, but there is... There's definitely some kind of link, isn't there, between the sound of this and the sound of desire. And I, I wonder if being involved in the film just gave him a little bit of purpose that had been lacking on a lot of self-portrait. And, and of course, although we've talked about New Morning as a return to form in that hackneyed old cliche, <laughs> of course, he, it wasn't really because he, he hadn't done anything else for a couple of years. So maybe you're right. Maybe there's something about his his kind of I don't know, maybe even his confidence, ridiculous as, as it sounds. Maybe it's coming back in these sessions and, and, and some of those performances are, are emerging as a result. Sorry, I was just going to say that the bass on this, I'm not sure if it's the same person playing bass as it is on Desire, but the bass is very redolent of, uh, of Desire, certainly. And, and I think very much more prominent. And I think that maybe is kind of um, sort of symptomatic of the fact that recording conditions have improved and technologies improved, but the bass is definitely kind of far more out there. Whereas on pre- on the sixties records, it tends to be pretty muddy, doesn't it? And, uh, yeah. and of course in desire, I think that the bass is kind of key. It's very, very melodic. And I, I hear quite a lot of that on, on, on this record, certainly. And the stripped down nature of desire helps that, doesn't it? And this is very much in the same space, I guess, instrumentally. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I don't know, Mark, if, if there's much much more we want to talk about now or whether we want to kind of start moving towards last thoughts. I think we've covered most of this. We've spent more time talking about the film, probably, but it is worth talking about. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think this, this is, after all, a film soundtrack, isn't it? Unlike other weeks when we've talked about, or other months when we've talked about different albums, you can't talk about the, the music here without talking about the, the pictures. So kind of, what are you reckoning then? That like, sort of last thoughts... What what springs to mind with, with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid then? Well, I do think it's a tremendous film and I agree with you that it's a great soundtrack for that film. I'm not so sure that it's a great album. I agree with you. I, I, I probably won't listen to it a lot after this. Although saying that, I'm planning to watch the film again, at least another couple of times in the next week. So I'll probably be inspired to listen to the soundtrack too. But I just think it's fantastic that this film has three officially released versions. I don't even know if there are other versions that are knocking around. It's got subtle and not so different, not so subtle differences between each of the versions. It's got 
armies of people online who will argue about the minutia of the differences and will defend their favorite version almost to the death, apparently. Um, and no one can ever agree on what the definitive version is or should be. And I think it's tremendous that that's the film that Dylan is probably most well known for acting in, because it certainly stacks up with the other elements of Bob Dylan's career. Yes, indeed. And Alias, lest we forget, was supposedly a, a real character as well. I, at the time of watching it first time, I, I actually thought he'd just been made up. But in the, uh, the book, An Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, the claim is that, that Pat Garrett actually rode to Fort, which fort is it at the end? I forget, but um, with, with someone called Alias. So, so, yeah, I mean, again, even that's mysterious, whether or not this character existed, which I kind of love. Again, that sort of ties in with everything that we know about Bob Dylan, really. Yeah, I love the kind of Pueblo feel of it. The um, I, I think that it sounds great as a record, but I'm going to stick with what I said previously. I think it's a great soundtrack and a kind of not such a great album, but I don't think that kind of diminishes uh, it in too many uh, in too many regards. I think that's probably about us, isn't it? So thank you very much indeed for joining us on this occasion. We are going to be, whisper it, but trying to put out a Christmas special of sorts. And join us next time in our kind of official run of albums for Planet Waves. Uh, you can find us if you look on Twitter. We are at Dylan American. And please do send us any questions, any suggestions. We'll be delighted to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.